Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. What is wrong? What's wrong with people? What's wrong with the world? So is it that human nature has just gone bad? So the problem is within us? Or is it that human nature or nature in general is not the problem, but what we do with it? Let's uh, read from Genesis 1, 26 to 31, a passage that we're very familiar with. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which is fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And every beast of the earth, and every bird of the sky, and everything that moves on the earth which has life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. It was good in the original image. God's self-image. It was good. And there is an inherent relationship to God, I think, in that unity. I think that we cannot abstract, you know, that let us make man in our image. That man's image, his life, is found not within himself, but within relationship to God. Because God is himself. Interpersonal relationship. We were made in and for this relationship, which is fulfilled or completed in Christ. And so the question that arises is whether we completely lose this image and this relationship in the fall recorded in Genesis 3. This is an idea that only appears 400 years after the church began, and it is proposed by Augustine. And so in the Western world, in the post-apostolic period, maybe there was no more important thinker or more influential thinker than Augustine. And his peculiar biography may be important because it's going to influence in the Western world the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. Maybe if he had had a little less trouble with sex and sexual lust, things would have turned out differently but he felt he couldn't get a control of himself. And then because of his misreading, or at least the mistranslation of Romans 5, he reads that as saying that all human beings sinned in Adam, which is not what it says at all. And then he assumed there is an inherited guilt, total depravity, 
a loss of free will and what we call original sin. And so all are conceived in sin, people are going to hell and damned from the moment of conception. For as soon as our first parents had transgressed the commandment, he writes in the city of God, divine grace forsook them. Nature was in the words of Augustine from that moment literally disgraced, ungraced. God's care was utterly lost. Henceforth, it was a graceless nature. And so nature and grace are pitted against one another in Augustine's thought and maybe just in Western Christianity. Thus for Augustine, human nature is no longer such that humanity is free or able to obey the Creator. The very possibility of not sinning is lost. And indeed, it is not possible for humanity not to sin or even really to choose Christ because even the choosing, you understand, is going to be prompted by the time we get to Calvin, certainly, by prevenient grace. And so the result of Adam and Eve's transgression, according to Augustine, there's a complete change for the whole human race, human nature, the original goodness, the original righteous state of humanity has been determined by the burden of original sin. Nature knows no grace because our first parents disgraced us all. I think this is profoundly mistaken. And a straightforward way to get at the mistake and avoid this Western theological complication is to go right back to the period after the Bible was written and before there was this two-tiered nature, supernature split or nature pitted against grace. We don't find this at all in the early Christian writers. This is something that is invented by Augustine. So if we go back to Irenaeus, for example, Irenaeus, we think, was born around 120, 130. So he's writing there in the second century. He knew Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John. So he's a direct and direct line with the apostles. And he's written one of the fullest theological understandings that we have. And he's primarily writing against the Gnostics. The Gnostics, in some ways, are going to do what Augustine does. That is, they're going to pit nature and grace also against one another. They're going to say, oh, that the material world, the physical world, is inherently failed or fallen. To go to heaven is to get rid of the body. Now that's not exactly what Augustine was saying, but there are some similarities. And if Augustine had followed Irenaeus' teaching, I believe we would have all been saved a lot of difficulty. Irenaeus' description of body, soul, and spirit, it clarifies there is no human nature apart from God. That is, what Augustine is picturing, oh, God left, you know, he abandoned the humans when they fell. But what Irenaeus says, you have to have God in order to have humans. And that is a continual state. Quoting Irenaeus, the soul and the spirit are certainly a part of man, but certainly not the man. 
For the perfect man consists in the commingling of the union of the soul, receiving the spirit of the Father. And I want you to listen to the language here. He's using the, the word spirit, and it's unclear what he means, and I think he means it to be unclear. Is he talking about capital S spirit? The Holy Spirit? It's clear in this instance he is. And the idea is that it's the spirit, the spirit of God given to man. It's man's own spirit. It's the life, the spirit of the Father, that makes human beings human. And so the admixture, he says, of that fleshly nature which was molded after the image of God is vivified, brought to life through the Spirit. And so where the Gnostics taught a radical dualism between God and matter and God and the world, they'd say God the Father can have nothing to do with the material world. In fact, a demiurge or a mediating deity is the one through whom the world was created. Irenaeus is refuting these Gnostics, these heretics. They're Christians, but they're taking the doctrine of the Bible and misusing it. And what he does then, he takes the Genesis story and he sees it completed in Christ that to picture the full participation in, of God and man and man in God, that this is the natural end. This is the point of creation. So creation and participation, or what in the Eastern Church is called theosis, being brought to the fullness of the image, that was always God's purpose in creation. This is who God is always, and this is who humans always are. And this is the point of creation. And so we need three elements, soul and body and spirit, and this constitutes the image of God in which man was created. Irenaeus uses the word spirit here. It portrays the perfection, the full cooperation or participation between the divine and human. But he also says it's in the area of the spirit. He allows that there's a diminishment of this. Quoting Irenaeus, one of these does indeed preserve and fashion the man. This is the spirit. While as to another, it is united and formed. That is the flesh. Then comes that which is between these two. That is the soul, which sometimes indeed when it follows the spirit is raised up by it. But sometimes it sympathizes with the flesh and it falls into carnal lusts. And so the spirit preserves, it fashions the man so that there is no human apart from the spirit. And what he means here is the Spirit of God. But the Spirit of God given to humans is part of what it means to be human. The Spirit is not something added to man, and yet there is the possibility that in following lusts that the role of the Spirit is diminished. And so as Irenaeus describes it, no part of the flesh-soul-spirit trichotomy can be left out of the mix that makes up the complete human. He says, if the spirit is lacking from the soul, such a one remaining indeed animated and fleshly will be imperfect, having the image certainly in the handiwork, and here he means the flesh, but not receiving the likeness of the spirit. Remember the passage we read? Created in the image and likeness. And what 
Irenaeus is doing, he's going to distinguish between the image and likeness. He's saying the image, well, that's the handiwork, that's the flesh, that's the soul, and the likeness is the spirit. The point being that we need all three. We need the, the soul and the spirit and the flesh, and we need God's active participation for there to be a human. What I'm describing is the impossibility of a humanity that is graceless. John Baer, who is an Eastern Orthodox theologian, he notes with Irenaeus, it is the spirit that renders human beings both living and due to this combination with the flesh, they're human. That is, you're not human apart from the flesh and you're not human apart from the spirit. He says, it is the spirit that absorbs the weakness of the flesh and manifest living human beings living because of the Spirit. And then he emphasizes their spirit. That is, God's spirit becomes our spirit. And human beings living because of the Spirit, they become complete. And his point is that it is always the human who lives, who personalizes the life given to them by God. The virtues and life developed in the flesh through the Spirit it's not an overriding of human personality and freedom, but it is their completion. On the other hand, if we take away the substance, the flesh of the handiwork, we're only left with the spirit. But the spirit itself is not the human, but is given to the human in such a manner that it can be legitimately described as their spirit. Clearly the spirit is needed to complete the creation in the image and likeness. And then he references, when he's you know, going through this in great detail, he references 1 Thessalonians 5.23. What he's describing is the full scope, creation, the coming of Christ, and then the eschaton, that there is a completion of creation in the eschaton. 1 Thessalonians says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the completeness, the fullness of the image occurs then, is occurring, is an ongoing event completed at the coming of Christ. But this completion is a process that's initiated from creation. He's looking at all of history as kind of a singular event. And he's just laying it out. Here's creation, you know, here's the fulfillment, the continued creation through Christ and the fulfillment of creation, that it's all a singular process. And so the fact that man was created by God, that's already pure grace. That's a gift. To begin with, it's a grace. And we cannot say that the addition of the Spirit you know, is supernature. That's what, you know, the distinction is. Oh, you've got nature, and then you've got supernature. No, the whole thing is grace. The whole thing is supernature. As Vladimir Lossky portrays it in the Eastern tradition, he talks about it will preserve the image of God as preserving the full integration of nature and grace. He writes... The idea of supererogatory grace, which is added to nature in order to order it towards God, is foreign to the tradition of the Eastern Church. 
And so the understanding of the early church in Irenaeus, what Lasky is describing, is preserved in the Eastern Church. The image of God, the ordering of the human person, was always towards its archetype, you know, capital A, Christ. And so Augustine, you know, Augustine, by the way, changes. So you can actually go to early Augustine and pit him against later Augustine. He admits, he acknowledges the goodness of nature, especially in his early writings. But what he will come to say is that in comparison to Christ, that this goodness is a secondary order of goodness. But Irenaeus describes all goodness as God's goodness. All goodness, whether it belongs to this world or to the final consummation, is a manifestation of the grace and goodness of God. And so in Irenaeus, in the early church, before Augustine, there is no trace of the dualism that we have in the West, Protestant and Catholic. For Irenaeus, humans are not two-storied. That is, we have two-storied creatures. You know, in the beginning, they possess an integrated human nature free of God, and then later on in Christ, God is added to the relationship. By definition, the image and likeness in which humans are created is a participation in God, in the divine. And so grace is not added to an ungraced world or to a God-free man. As what it means to be made soul, body, and spirit, you're created in the image and likeness of God. This is the participation of God in man and man in God. We are made for relationship with God. And in this understanding, the completion of creation continues in Christ through the eschaton. God's plan was not thwarted by sin. The world was predestined to the fullness of life in God. God knew what he was doing when he created. He didn't say, oh, whoops, they've blown it now. There is no antagonism or dualism between nature and grace. The only conflict is between sin and grace. And sin cannot possibly have completely corrupted God's good creation. And this is the New Testament. But you can even begin in the Hebrew Bible. You know, it's creatureliness that sin takes hold even in the Old Testament. And this is often, you know, human nature, we might use the word flesh. Flesh is a kind of ambiguous term in the Bible. But we know that this flesh or embodiment or creatureliness, it is not in conflict with the spirit. That in the Old Testament, the flesh is that place where the battle between the Holy Spirit and the spirit of iniquity takes place. But the flesh or the body or human nature is not the problem. The problem is sin. And so the Hebrew scriptures are not picturing some sort of Gnostic cosmic conflict between nature and spirit or between the corporeal and incorporeal. The problem, you know, what is sin? Well, it's too much devotion. It's too much trust in the flesh apart from God. It lends the flesh a power, you know, and Paul will talk about the flesh and the law 
as being the same problem. The sinful life is by definition oriented to the flesh or to the law. It serves the flesh. And this results in fleshly thinking. I'm, think, I'm looking here at Romans 8, 8 to 9. But being in the flesh or body, that's not inevitably sinful because we're all in the flesh. Christ was in the flesh. Christ specifically defeats the orientation to the flesh in the flesh and makes it possible for his followers to rid themselves of this orientation. Not by getting rid of the flesh, not by getting rid of the body, but by being oriented to the spirit. And of course, Paul can say that the believer no longer lives in the flesh or lives toward the flesh, you know, not because he's abandoned the body, but because the sinful orientation, which he marks by this kind of shorthand of flesh, it no longer controls him. He describes the believer and himself as crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires, Galatians 5.24. And this is not a literal crucifixion. And the flesh that dies is not the literal corporeal body, but the principle of sin attached to the orientation to the flesh. So he doesn't mean, oh, we Christians no longer live in our bodies, or we no longer have flesh. The believer always lives physically. He says in Corinthians, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Paul says in Galatians, I now live in the flesh, but he notes that this living is marked not by faith in the flesh, but by faith in the Son of God. Nothing wrong with the flesh, nothing wrong with the body. The problem is putting our trust in the flesh, in the law, in the body. And so Paul, in describing flesh, law, sin, you know, he's probably thinking of his own pharisaical drive to achieve righteousness through the law. That is kind of the struggle of sin. He describes the Jews and himself as imagining that they can establish their own righteousness. And he describes this as on the order of trusting in the power of the flesh. So the problem in both Romans and Galatians, they imagine that there's life in the law, that it produces life. You know, did, did God ever say there is life in the law, in the principle, in the ordinances? There is life in God, and the law is to direct us to God. The command which promised life did not point to itself as the source of life, but to God. And the perception of promise of life in the law, this is Paul's description of sin, it's skewed by the deception of sin, you don't need God. In other words, you just, that's actually what's happening, both Jew and Gentile. They've really eliminated the role of God in relationship to God, and they have a relationship to the law. And so he talks about this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me, for sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. 
And the correct nuance here is to understand that the law keeps one in a life-giving relationship. You know, think of the law, the command given in, in Genesis. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but eat of the tree of life. The command was to direct you to God, to the tree of life, which represented God's presence. And it is this relationship to God that is the true source of life. And so the problem with the law, the problem with the flesh, the problem with human nature, it all reduces to the singular problem, and this is Paul's language, the elements of the cosmos have been made absolute and have not been understood in relationship to God. What I'm describing is the human problem is to imagine that what Augustine describes is the case. What Augustine is describing is a lie. That we imagine that there is such a thing as an integrity of nature or a human apart from God. And so the Augustinian mistake is the Gnostic mistake in imagining a world separate from God. There is no such possibility. Whatever Paul means, you know, by the stoica, the elementary principles, these elements, it seems that the law and the flesh are counted among those things, he says in Galatians 4.3, which held all people captive. It's not the problem of the law, the flesh, or simply the material order of creation or human nature. None of these are intrinsically sinful, but they enslave those who entrust themselves completely to this order. And this is shown then in Christ, in his breaking in. This is Galatians. It entails a new creation. Creation is once again being made new. This is not a nature-grace dualism. It's an eschatological dualism in which two ages overlap. Paul pictures the present evil age in which people have entrusted themselves to the flesh, to the law, ruled by sin. A new age is commenced in Christ, not from the beginning of time, but from this moment of Christ breaking in in which there's a fulfillment then of God's good creation. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org. Dot org.